0: Well, this class is uh, called Defending the Faith, and the whole class is really based on uh, one text, that is 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, can you show that, Lindsay? We, we were having some, some significant technical issues this morning with Apple TV. The ghost of Steve Jobs was haunting us this morning. Um, first slide, Lindsay. 1 Peter 3 15. I'll just just read it. Uh, Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. What is that word defense in Greek? Anyone know? What is that word? Apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect. So, why teach a class on apologetics? Why are we talking about defending the faith? Well, for a variety of reasons. Um, One of them is to equip you all to talk to your non-Christian friends about the things of God and to obey this passage in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, commands all of us to be prepared to give a defense uh, for the truth claims of Christianity. But I'm also teaching this class because I know that every Christian, nearly every Christian, goes through a season of doubt or multiple seasons of doubt where they wonder Is all this Christian stuff really true? Is there good evidence to believe that it's true? And like I mentioned last spring, I have gone through a few seasons of doubt where I have wondered, is Christianity real? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Does God really exist? Is the Bible really the Word of God? going through those seasons uh, really can be a blessing because they they force you to think very carefully about um, all these things, and they force you to develop convictions. So with that said, the question is, what do you do when you doubt? And last spring, we we talked about five different lines of evidence uh, that we can mentally go through when we are having doubts about the Christian faith. So, this is review time from last spring, and I have lots of coffee cards to give away this morning. By the way, we're done giving away Starbucks cards. Can I get an amen? Um, So, uh, instead, we are giving away Brews Bros cards, and that's because – this is supposed to be confidential – someone – that's all I'll say, someone – someone – gave us Bruce Bros gift cards. I can't tell you who, I want to, but I can't. But I will say this, someone who goes to church here owns Bruce Bros. I didn't tell you who gave me the gift cards though, did I? I didn't tell you that, I didn't tell you that. Okay, so uh, the, the, first, the first line of reasoning we talked about last spring was the cosmological proof for God's existence. Do you remember that from last spring? Three lines of evidence. The first is, anyone remember, everything that has a beginning has a cause. Number two, the universe has a beginning, therefore, the universe has a cause. And we looked at five lines of evidence uh, why we think the universe had a beginning. And I think that that argument is incredibly persuasive. Uh, It lines up really well with the findings of modern science. Uh, Modern science points us very, very clearly in the direction of the universe having a cause. Um, Number two, we talked about the teleological argument, and that's the argument from design. Okay, the word telos in Greek means end or design. Uh, And how does that argument go? Everything that has a design, has a designer. The universe has a highly complex design, therefore, the universe has a designer. And there we looked at two lines of evidence, although there's many, many more. Um, We looked at the fine-tuning of the universe, and we looked at the, uh, the incredible amount of information stored in DNA to prove that there is incredible design in the universe. Uh, and by the way, um, Anthony Flew, who I mentioned last spring, who was one of the 20th century's uh, greatest atheists, uh, who, who he, he was an, 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 um, an academic atheist, a philosopher by training, wrote lots of books promoting atheism, and it was the design argument that convinced him that God exists. And that was after uh, like a 40-year career of debating theists. So it's an incredibly powerful argument. Number three, uh, we talked about The Moral Argument for God's Existence, and it goes like this, if God does not exist, objective morals and values do not exist. Number two, what's the second premise there? Objective morals and values do exist, and everyone lives as if they do. Don't let anyone fool you. Even the most hardened skeptic, the staunchest atheist, will say it is always wrong to torture babies, or it is always wrong to be intolerant of certain people groups. Whenever you're saying always and never, you're using objective language, and that can only be used from a theistic worldview. Okay, so, so far, those three arguments, cosmological, teleological, and moral, are just arguing for God's existence, but we're not yet talking about the Christian God. Which brings us to the fourth argument, uh, and that is the uh, supernatural nature of Scripture. And this argument, I think, is incredibly powerful. The reality is the Bible contains literally hundreds of very, very specific prophecies. Many have already been fulfilled in time and space and history. And only God knows the future. Yet the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Amos and the prophet Nahum uh, and many other Old Testament prophets predicted things about the future that came to pass. How do we explain that? How do we explain that? Supernatural. Supernatural. I'm getting lots of blank stares. Okay. Does that make sense? That's pretty straightforward. Okay. Um, Number five, so we have the cosmological, teleological, moral, uh, supernatural, natural scripture. Uh, Number five, we talked about the resurrection. And if you can tell me the acronym we used... Last spring, to defend the resurrection, you get a $5 bris gift card. Yes, it wasn't alive. That probably works though, somehow. Um, what was it? Feet. Who said it? Troy? Okay, so what? You have my notes. Hey, gift card for having my notes. Okay, Troy, come on. Who wants to, you have to come get it, Troy. I need a helper. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. Okay, so so who who can tell me um, what feet stands for? What feet, <laughs> Troy? <laughs> uh, what what does feet stand for? This is a very this this is from Hank Hanegraaff, by the way. I didn't make this up. Uh, it's very helpful. Uh, F stands for fatal, fatal torment. torment. Uh, Nick is cheating too. <laughs> okay, without looking. Okay, F is fatal torment. Um, Jesus actually died on the cross. Uh, he didn't swoon. Uh, that's opposed to what's called the swoon theory. Um, e is empty tomb. Okay, there's evidence that the tomb was actually uh, empty. Um, what's A? Appearances. Joe, are you cheating? Not kind of. <laughs> Okay, so, so what, what, is, what does appearances mean? Like, what does that mean, appearances? Appearances of? Eyewitnesses. Okay, eyewitnesses, okay, eyewitnesses. And then what's the T? Transformation, transformation. And, and there, what's amazing is you have all these, literally thousands of Jews in the first century who believed that blasphemy was punishable by death. That a mere man claiming to be God was punishable by death, yet thousands of Jews converted to Christianity, affirming the deity of Jesus because of the evidence of the resurrection. They were transformed by the evidence, and more importantly, by the person Jesus. So we spent two whole weeks unpacking that evidence, fatal torment, empty tomb appearances, transformation. Okay, so when I go through seasons of doubt, I think through those five things cosmological argument, teleological argument, um, moral argument, uh, resurrection, and the fact that the Bible contains all kinds of evidence or signs for its supernatural nature. Okay? Now, there's, there's one more positive evidence I want to talk about this morning before we move on next week to actually responding to objections to Christianity. And, and this morning, um, I, I want to talk about Arguments from personal experience. Arguments from personal experience. Now, um, b- before I do that, though, let me, let me tell you uh, the plan this, this fall. Again, last spring we laid out a positive case for Christianity, concluding with this morning's lecture. Then we'll move into all the objections to Christianity. So we're going to deal with the hardest one first. We're going to spend two weeks on the problem of evil starting next week. Then we'll talk about, um, are science and faith compatible or incompatible? Then we'll talk specifically about um, evolution. Then I'm going to have a panel discussion uh, on evolution with a few people. Uh, Then we're going to talk about, is Jesus the only way? Then we're going to talk about the objection that Christianity is homophobic. Then we'll talk about, um, how can a loving God send people to hell? They're here, (laughs) they arrived. Can you hear them back there? Now they're being very quiet. (laughs) Okay, where was I? Okay, Um, and then number eight, we'll talk about the objection uh, that Christianity leads to violence. Number nine, Christianity is intolerant. Number 10, Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. And number 11, Christianity condones slavery, denigrates women and encourages genocide. So, we're going to spend the next 11, 12, 13 weeks roughly um, on those topics responding to the most common objections to Christianity. So, this morning's topic, again, uh, we're talking about um, arguments from experience or from personal observation. If all the things that we have discussed so far, cosmological, teleological, moral, resurrection, etc if those are all true, then you and I should expect to see things or to have experiences that line up with what I've said so far. So in this session, I'm not attempting to make an airtight, razor-sharp um, argument for Christianity. I think I've already done that with the previous five arguments, although you can be the judge of that. I'm simply arguing that Christianity's truthfulness can be seen in experiences and in observation. By the way, we argue from observation and experience all the time. That's how most of us make arguments for things. This basic argument uh, from experience is called an inference to the best explanation. This type of argument really is asking two questions. What best explains the things that I've seen or experienced? Number one. Number two, is there, good, is there any good evidence to the contrary? And again, we use this line of reasoning all the time in real life. Bottom line, there are experiences that I've had and probably that you've had, there are things that I've seen that I simply cannot explain apart from a Christian worldview. So this morning, we're going to look at the top 10, my top 10 observations. How many of you remember David Letterman's show? Okay, he used to always have his top 10 list. Remember that? Okay, so this is my top 10 list. Now, are we gonna get through all 10 this morning? We'll see, we'll see. So, number one, um, are the thing, are uh, simply, I have observed uh, transformed lives. Starting with my own. I grew up in a Christian home. I had wonderful, godly parents. I knew all the answers to all the questions that are asked of kids who is Jesus? What is the gospel? Is the Bible true? I affirmed all those things. But I was living for myself. I was a rebellious kid, and my dad was an elder. <laughs> I didn't disqualify him. I almost did a few times. Um, I, I did all kinds of rebellious things. I was not a good kid. Snuck out at night, rendezvoused with girlfriends, teepeed houses, egged houses, had really bad language, did all kinds of stupid things with my non Christian friends. So I would have said, I believe the gospel, but it did not have any impact on my life until I was 16. When I was 16, I went through a really painful breakup with a non-Christian girlfriend, and it really caused me to hit rock bottom. And I realized that I was looking to her and to athletics for all my happiness and joy in life, and those things were letting me down in profound ways. Furthermore, I realized that this girl was a significant idol in my life. And God wanted me to repent of that idol. And by the way, my, my parents are so faithful. Several times they said to me, Dave, it doesn't matter that you pray the sinner's prayer. Doesn't matter. Because your life has not been transformed. And based on the lack of evidence of fruit in your life, when you die, you're going to hell. My parents told me that several times, 13, 14, 15 years old. So I'd get terrified and I'd go pray the sinner's prayer again and again and again. But it wouldn't stick. It didn't work because God had not regenerated my heart yet. So when I was 16, I was profoundly devastated by this breakup and uh, again put my faith and trust in Jesus. But that time, things really changed. I began to actually care what God thought about my behavior. And I began to actually look forward to going to church, reading my Bible, and praying. And I, be, and I stopped swearing, stopped sneaking out at night, stopped doing stupid things with my friends. And over the years, God has very, very slowly changed me. And now, even, even when no one is watching, there are certain things that I don't do because I know that God is watching, and I don't want to displease God. So am I where I want to be spiritually? Of course not. I'd love to grow in so many areas, love and humility and gentleness and prayer. love to grow in all those areas. But God has transformed me substantially from when I was 16 years old. And we often look back over like the last year of our lives and think oh, I haven't changed very much in the last year. Maybe you haven't. But how about the last decade or the last 3 decades? Hopefully God is transforming you. I think about the testimonies of many, many other people. I think about the testimony of uh, John Newton, who many of you know wrote the the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. As most of you know, John Newton was a uh, notorious uh, slave trader before he was converted. He was a very, very evil man. There's a fantastic biography about him called From Disgrace to Amazing Grace. It's by a guy named David Atkin. It's really, really good because it it describes how incredibly wicked he was before conversion. And because there's kids present, I won't go into it, but he was a very, very licentious, um, sexually immoral, angry, violent person before he was a Christian, and he ran slave ships. Even when he was converted, God works very slowly sometimes. He was still involved in the slave trade. It took him a while to understand that that was an incredibly um, evil way to make a living. But eventually, he became one of the chief advocates for abolition in England. He was close with William Wilberforce, who, as many of you know, was one of the main uh, reasons why there's no longer slavery in the West. But God transformed him and he became a pastor and wrote some incredible hymns. And then I think of the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, who many of you uh, have heard her story. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a um, professor of queer theory at Syracuse University. She was in a very committed lesbian relationship, very happy living her lesbian lifestyle, very happy promoting queer scholarship. And she was doing research On Christians as a strange cult phenomenon. So she visited a a local Presbyterian church, uh, and the pastor and his wife reached out to her, and they loved her over a period of years, and she became a Christian. And now she's a pastor's wife, she loves Jesus, and she's written some beautiful books defending the traditional view of sexuality. I mentioned a while ago, maybe a year ago, um, another fantastic similar story the story of Beckett Cook. Uh, his biography, I think, is in the bookstore still. It's called The Change of Affection. And Beckett Cook grew up uh, in a large Catholic family, um, had a very, very passive father, uh, and, and grew up with being same sex attracted. And initially, he resisted those temptations, but he went off to college and he dove headlong into his sin. And became very, very bitter towards Christianity and the church. He was very well versed in all the arguments for atheism. He was not um, a naive atheist. He was a committed atheist who knew the arguments and was pursuing the gay lifestyle with abandon. When he was in, I think his mid to late 30s, he was working in Hollywood in the film industry, uh, and he was at a restaurant in Hollywood and he overheard a pastor and several people uh, next to him talking about the Book of Romans, and he was intrigued. Even though, again, he despised Christianity, but he was somehow intrigued by their conversation, asked them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, we're talking about the Book of Romans, and then the pastor leading that study basically shared the gospel with Beckett Cook, um, and he was, he was really turned off but went home that night and began to think about what the pastor said. And the pastor invited him to church the following Sunday. And by the way, that that pastor also had a history of struggling with same-sex attraction and God redeemed him, which is wonderful. So Beckett Cook um, woke up the following morning and for some unknown reason, he had this incredibly strong desire to go to church, even though he hated Christians and hated church. So he got in his car and thought, what am I doing? Like, why am I even doing this? The Holy Spirit was irresistibly drawing him to himself. He shows up at church, hears a sermon, and on the spot, he is dramatically, supernaturally changed. And from that moment on, he left the gay lifestyle, went to seminary, he's now, I think, a pastor, or at least a Christian author, writing beautiful books. Left all of his friends behind, He really had to count the cost of following Jesus. Now, transformed lives like mine and Rosaria's and Becca Cook's and John Newton's are not definitive proof that Christianity is true. Nonetheless, there are at least 225 people at GCF North. That's how many members we have up north, adult members. They've all experienced the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right now, over two billion people worldwide claim to be Christians. Again, does this prove Christianity is true? No. But it is part of the cumulative case for the truthfulness of Christianity. So the first argument is, uh, I have observed transformed lives. Number two, I have observed the supernatural. And I don't know what to do with these experiences, apart from a Christian worldview. You've heard a lot of these stories before, but I I don't have a lot of stories, so I'm going to keep telling the same stories. But about um, four or five years ago, I was at a prayer meeting uh, with a man named Jeff Wells. And at that point, I... We had been looking for a North Campus building for a couple of years. It had been very stressful. Nothing was showing up. And, and I really believed that God had been saying to me, Dave, stop looking for buildings. Trust God. It's all going to work out. So I stopped for about six months. Then I kept looking, reaching out to friends, pastors, you know, of any buildings for sale. And it was causing me some anxiety. And it was taking up way too much of my thought life. Jeff didn't know any of this, okay? At this point, Jeff didn't even go to our church. I hadn't talked to Jeff in a couple of years. But Jeff happened to go to a prayer meeting that I was at. And after the prayer meeting, uh, Jeff said to me, hey, Dave, when we were praying, when I was praying for you, I I had this picture in my mind of this massive church building on your shoulders weighing you down. Does this mean anything to you? And I thought, how in the world did Jeff know that I was having these internal battles and struggles? He only knew because God revealed that to him. Many, many years ago, um, I was at the Sovereign Grace Ministries Pastors College, and a very, very similar thing happened, although it happened on a much larger scale. Uh, Several people from uh, Sovereign Grace Church in Philadelphia came down to Gaithersburg, Maryland, where I was, uh, and they prayed over all the students, and there were things that this prayer team knew about the students, that there's no way they could have ever known apart from the Holy Spirit. We're talking about deep internal secrets that no one could have possibly known apart from the Spirit of God revealing that to them. So I don't know how to explain those experiences apart from a Christian worldview. I I think about uh, Bruce Ware, who is a professor of theology at Southern Seminary. I I happen to know him personally, taken a few classes from him. And Bruce Ware uh, is not a charismatic, okay? He's theologically a cessationist. But he's a very good theologian, and he's a great guy. Um, And at at one point, he was teaching at Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, which at, at that point was the premier evangelical seminary in the world. And around that time, uh, Albert Moeller had taken over as the president of Southern Seminary in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And Southern Seminary uh, was a pretty liberal seminary. And Al Moeller's plan was to basically fire everyone and then hire a conservative faculty, which he eventually did. And now it's the largest and most, uh, I think, faithful seminary in the world today. But Bruce Ware didn't know any of that. And Al Moeller is trying to recruit Bruce Ware to come teach at Southern Seminary. And Bruce was like, why would I do that? I'm at the peak of my game. I'm at a premier seminary. I'm getting paid well. I have influence. I'm able to write books. Why in the world would I ever leave Trinity and go to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky? That's nonsense. And again, at that point, Southern Seminary was not in a good place. But Al Mohler is very persistent and said, Bruce, would you at least pray about it? So he said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll pray. I'll pray about it. Uh, Bruce showed up at church, a couple months later, after he'd been praying about this. And there was a lady in the congregation who knew nothing about Bruce's prayers and struggles with this decision. In fact, this was all top secret. Only Al Mohler and Bruce Ware knew they were having these conversations. And this lady said, Dr. Ware, the strangest thing happened last night. Uh, While I was sleeping, I had this really intense, vivid dream that you were teaching at a seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and you were thriving. Does that mean anything to you? <laughs> and and he, he, his jaw dropped, and he thought, how did you know? I was even thinking about this. So it turns out that eventually Bruce Ware went to Southern Seminary, and again, Southern Seminary is now the largest, most prestigious, I would say most faithful seminary in the world. Um, and again, how, how do I explain that story if I'm an atheist or apart from a Christian worldview? Now, I could tell many, many other stories. I'm going way too slow. But I'm sure you all have stories that you've heard or experienced as well that cause you to think, how do I explain this story apart from a, a Christian worldview? Okay, this, this third point is similar, but a little different, and that is simply this. I have observed up-close, and very personal demonic activity. And if Satan is real and demons are real, then God is real. When I was in about fourth or fifth grade, I was at church. It was a Sunday evening service. We had a guest speaker, and it was a very normal service. He spoke, and afterwards he said, If anyone wants prayer, please come forward, and we'd love to pray for you and several people came forward, and for whatever reason, in God's divine sovereignty, God pulled back the veil and revealed to us the supernatural, demonic world that night. And literally, all hell broke loose. Several people got prayed for, and they were screaming, writhing on the floor like snakes. Um, their bodies were convulsing. Uh, there, there was one young lady who had struggled with anorexia and bulimia for many years, and the elders prayed for her, and this deep male voice came out of her, not her voice, and said, I am starvation. I own this body. <laughs> okay, this is not a movie. This really happened. Saw not with my own eyes. And since then, I've been involved in several exorcisms that have freaked me out. <laughs> uh, I was involved in one where I was praying for this particular person. She had been involved in the occult and in prostitution for many years, and she looked at me about this far away, and she said, not her voice, I hate you, I'm going to kill you. And I thought, uh, I was with my parents. Mom and dad, why don't you take over and you pray for her? I'll go get some coffee for us. And, um, and I've, I've seen those types of things numerous times. If Satan is real, the Bible is true, and God is real. And by the way, Christians, you have nothing to fear. For a variety of reasons. But first and foremost, God controls all things, even, the sa- even Satan and demons. As John Piper famously says, God uses demons to sanctify the saints. What he means by that is, Romans 8.28, God uses all things for good, even demonic oppression. So we have nothing to fear if we're Christians. And again, I don't know how to explain those experiences apart from Christian worldview. Th- two, more, two more quick stories. Um, a, a, a really good friend of mine, one of my best friends in college, when he was a kid, uh, he was at a Bill Gothard uh, crusade. I many of if you remember Bill Gothard, who ended up taking a left turn. <laughs> I, won't even, I won't even go there. But um, back in the day, many decades ago, I think God probably used him. Um, But my friend Eric was at this Bill Gothard conference. Thousands of people in in the audience. Bill Gothard is preaching and teaching. And this, this guy gets up out of his chair and charges forward with a knife to attack Bill Gothard. And he got about this far away and some invisible force kept him from attacking Bill Gothard. It was like this invisible hand was holding, and he was like trying to lunge ahead, and he couldn't because he was being held in place by something, probably an angel. Um, my dad and uh, um, Tim Proctor, uh, Paul Proctor's dad, uh, one of our pastors, uh, they worked together for State Farm Insurance for many, many years, my dad and Tim, and, yeah, Tim Proctor, not Paul Proctor, um, and they, were, uh, they had been evangelizing uh, one of their co-workers. And this particular man uh, finally uh, expressed a lot of interest in Christianity. And this, this particular man was probably at that point in his, in his mid-forties, um, a, a very, very successful man in the insurance industry. He was in management, uh, very well esteemed by his colleagues, very level-headed. And, and that evening, after he had um, expressed significant interest in Christianity, It was late in the night and my dad and and Tim Proctor woke up to the sound of this man screaming bloody murder in his hotel room. So they went into his room and he realized, they realized that this man was being attacked and tormented by demons. He, he, He was literally seeing demons in his room and terrified, all because he had expressed some interest in Christianity. And again, how do I explain these stories apart from a Christian worldview? It's really hard to do. Number four, I have observed that Christianity corresponds best to reality. In other words, the Christian worldview answers the most questions the most satisfactorily. Does it answer all the questions? No. But it answers the most questions, like, where did we come from? Why is the world so broken? What are human beings? Um, What is the solution to the world's problems? How is it all going to end? What is my purpose in life? Why does the free market work so effectively? What will happen to all of evil someday? Uh, Why does sin make such a mess of things? Furthermore, when you do things God's way, generally speaking, when you tell the truth, when you work hard, when you love and serve your spouse, when you spank your kids and love them and lather them with affection, things usually go much better for you in life. When you do things God's way, generally speaking, Life is much better. Now, I'm not at all <laughs> proclaiming the prosperity gospel, but just read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is wisdom for godly living, and Proverbs, are, they're not promises, but they're descriptions of, the, of, the, of the, the way things generally are, and generally speaking, when you do things God's way, it leads to prosperity and flourishing. On the contrary, when you don't do things God's way, It leads to pain and misery and suffering. When you lie, commit adultery, steal, cheat, when you're proud, when you're not correctable and teachable, when you're not generous, see how that turns out for you. Generally speaking, life does not go nearly as well. Number five, I have observed that Christianity has been the greatest source of good in world history. And this has been um, well documented in the last couple of decades by a variety of books. Um, Let me mention a couple of these. Dinesh D'Souza has a really good book called What's So Great About Christianity? Very, very good book. And he says this, Christianity provides uh, the basis for limited government Christianity provides the basis for human dignity. Christianity provides the basis for morality in society. Christianity provides the basis for a free market economy. Christianity provides the necessary framework for the scientific revolution. And we'll spend a lot more time talking about science in a few weeks, but do not be deceived. Science flows out of the Christian worldview, not the Muslim worldview, not the atheist worldview. And I'll argue that extensively in a couple of weeks. Christianity, contrary to the popular narrative, is not responsible for the vast amounts of violence in the 20th century. Who has caused the most violence in the 20th century? People with atheistic worldviews. Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot. Millions, hundreds of millions of people have died in the 20th century because of the atheistic worldview, not because of the Christian worldview. Another great book um, i recently read is called Jesus Skeptic by John S. Dickerson. It's a really good little book, argues a lot of the same things. Christianity is responsible for the scientific revolution, responsible for the creation and proliferation of hospitals worldwide. Hospitals flow out of the Christian worldview. Christianity is responsible for the abolition of slavery. It's responsible for the advent of public education. It's responsible for the university system. Universities have uh, flowed out of the Christian worldview. Christianity is responsible for the liberation of women. Uh, Another great book by Alvin Schmidt is called How Christianity Changed the World. A lot of the same things. Uh, He goes through history and argues that the sanctity of human life is a Christian ideal. Um, outlawing infanticide and abortion in the Roman Empire was the result of the Christians. Again, the liberation of women, the creation of hospitals and healthcare, prison reform, outlawing polygamy and pedophilia were the result of the Christian worldview. Literacy, dignifying labor, modern notions of freedom and liberty, the abolition of slavery, the best art, music, and literature all flow out of the Christian worldview. Uh, Rodney Stark is a sociologist at Baylor. I think he was at UW for a while. Uh, He is a prolific author. Uh, He's a fantastic scholar. He's written several books arguing the similar thesis. He wrote a great book called How the West Won that I had the elders read a few years ago. And he wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity, which I read, I think, this last year. And both those books argue, uh, with all kinds of excellent scholarship backing it up, that the reason why the West has been so successful in world history in the areas of science and literature and medicine and government and architecture and art is all because of the Christian worldview, specifically the Protestant worldview post-Reformation. Now, there's another book by, um, I can't think of his name right now, it's called Human Achievement, um, Andrew Murray similar to Stark's thesis, uh, although it's, it's even more specific. So he, he's asking the provocative question, where has the most human achievement occurred in world history? And he defines that very, very carefully. He's talking about achievement in the areas of art, literature, architecture, science, medicine, engineering. And he argues very persuasively that the most human achievement in world history has happened again in the west post reformation as a result of the protestant worldview and and Andrew Murray is not he's not a friend of evangelicals he's just asking the question very very objectively where has it all happened and he argues that it's happened in the west as a result of christianity now tragically Uh, In most universities now, Western Civ has been yanked from the curriculum, and that's because professors, the secular world hates the Christian worldview. The history of the West is the history of the Christian church. When I went to WSU, I was a history major, and uh, I had a fantastic class taught by a non-Christian, and the class was called the history of the Middle Ages, and the whole class was the history of the church. Because that's all there was. The church is what drove everything in the Middle Ages. Science, architecture, literature, everything. Came from the Christian worldview. The professor was not a Christian. So all that to say is that um, Christianity has been the greatest source of good in world history. And it's pretty hard to argue against Andrew Murray's research, Rodney Stark's research. These guys are world class Uh, scholars who are arguing this. Uh, Furthermore, uh, Wayne Grudem argues in a very similar vein um, that Christianity has had a a, a tremendous positive influence uh, on government. He points out that Christian ideas had a significant influence on the formation of the Magna Carta, 1215 A.D., Declaration of Independence, 1776, and the Constitution, 1787. Uh, And and these three documents have had an incredibly positive effect on the West. And liberty and the notion of individual rights, those come from a Christian worldview. You're not going to find those ideas in Muslim countries or Hindu countries or atheist countries. Those are very, very much ideas that flow out of the Christian worldview. Well, Dave, what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? Doesn't Christianity hinder science? Well, I'm gonna address these questions in much detail on subsequent lectures. But in addition, much of what you've learned in secular history about the Crusades is wrong. (laughs) Very tainted. Now, were the Crusades all good? No. Were they all bad? No. In fact, Rodney Stark, back to Rodney Stark, he he has a whole book on the crusades where he basically uh, sets out to dismantle all the myths surrounding the crusades. There's a real mixed bag. Some good, some bad, some really bad, some really good. Furthermore, all the things done in the name of Christianity are not necessarily Christian. Furthermore, when you, when you compare the violence of the Crusades with the violence of Islam, there is no comparison. Islam has one long history of jihad from the 7th century until the 19th. And the reason why it stopped is because the rest of the world leapt ahead of Islam because Islam does not have a worldview for science and innovation. So the West basically surpassed Islam in technology and military weaponry, and so Islam could not spread through jihad for most of the 20th century, but now that they have oil money, they can buy weapons of mass destruction. And again, all this is in Rodney Stark's book, How the West Won, a fantastic book where he argues all these things. Um, Okay, I'm way off my notes now. Anyways, this is a fantastic topic that you can explore more in Rodney Stark's books. And again, he is a a very, very good scholar. Very reputable scholar. Um, All right, let's move on uh, to the next, number six. Am I gonna make it? We'll see. All right, I have observed that life without God is utterly meaningless. Christians have purpose. Atheists don't. William Provane the esteemed Darwinian professor of biology from Cornell University wrote this. He says, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal, directing forces of any kind. There is no life after death. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. What an incredibly depressing worldview. And he's right. If there is no God, there is no purpose. You're here because of some random accident that happened in a warm little pond billions of years ago. You have no, no more value than fruit flies or trees or mosquitoes or moths or whales. Dr. Rodney Brooks from MIT says this, a human being is nothing but a machine or a big bag of skin full of biomolecules interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. And again, if evolution is true, if there is no God, you and I are nothing more than chunks of meat. But the problem is, is that all human beings are hardwired by God because they're made in his image to live for something, to have purpose and meaning in life. So this worldview does not work. The atheist worldview does not work. Christianity, on the other hand, provides human beings with real meaning and purpose in life. Number seven, this is related. I have observed that eternity is written on the hearts of men and women. Ecclesiastes 3:11 says this: "He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end." St. Augustine famously said this, in the opening of his fantastic autobiography called "The Confessions of St. Augustine, he says this: "God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless." until they find their rest in thee. Augustine understood that our hearts are very restless until they're submitted to Jesus. And Augustine lived a very, very sinful, self-centered, immoral lifestyle before conversion. One scholar says this, there is on the one hand, the pained longing for the transcendent, And on the other, the sense of the inadequacy of merely earthly goods to satisfy that longing. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? You buy a nice new car, and it satisfies for about a week. Move into a new house, get a new church building, and it satisfies for a few weeks maybe. Get a big raise, that's great, for a couple of months finally get married, finally have those kids, finally retire. Satisfies for a while. But our hearts are made for so much more. Blaise Pascal and C.S. Lewis really explored this theme uh, in great detail. Um, to fill this ache, we often distract ourselves with materialism, hedonism, Netflix, Uh, One scholar says this, uh, "'Diversion serves to distract humans from a plight too terrible to stare in the face, namely our mortality, finitude, and sinfulness. Interest in or an obsession for entertainment is more than silly or frivolous. It reveals a moral and spiritual malaise begging for explanation.' Our condition is inconstancy, boredom, and anxiety. Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. Isn't that true? Hasn't that been all of our experience? Or am I alone here? Okay. C.S. Lewis very famously observed Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that true? And then he goes on to say, this is an even more famous C.S. Lewis quote, probably his most famous quote, and by the way, sorry, oh, it is appearing behind me, fantastic, okay, thank you. Thank you for fixing that, Lindsay, Tom, and Brett. Let's give them a round of applause. We, we had all kinds of tech issues this morning, and they rallied, so thank you. Thank you. C.S. Lewis says, In our stupefaction, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because you cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, aren't we? Pleased with watching mindless spy thrillers on Netflix. Pleased with buying new clothes, new cars, climbing the corporate ladder. These things were not meant to ultimately satisfy us, which means... There must be something far greater and grander that is supposed to satisfy us, namely God. So we all have a desire for another world, a perfect world, a world filled with love and joy and peace, and nothing in this world seems to fully satisfy this longing. Number eight, I'm wrapping it up here. I have observed the utter inadequacy of other belief systems and there's no way i can go into a thorough critique here of all the other worldviews out there but I, i i'm totally unpersuaded by the evidence the evidence for atheism there is none islam is a works righteousness religion and if you look at cultures where islam is thriving you don't see lots of human flourishing What you see is violence and oppression, and especially oppression of women. The Mormon religion teaches a works righteousness. Furthermore, there's very, very little historical evidence to back it up. Judaism is the same. It's a works righteousness mentality. And the Old Testament so clearly points to Jesus Christ, I could never be a Jew. On and on we could go with critiquing other worldviews. Number nine. I have observed that Jesus is by far the most influential person to ever live. Now, it drives me crazy when I see that list, the top ten list, you know, most influential people in the world. Jesus isn't at the top. It's like, what planet do you live on? By all objective criteria, no one even comes close to the influence of Jesus. Not even close. Close. This has been documented very well in the book, Jesus Skeptic, which I mentioned earlier. Consider these facts. Jesus currently has more followers than any other person in the world history, 2.3 billion. Jesus continues to be the centerpiece of the world's yearly calendar. We live in the year 2021. What's that based on? Not after death, ad Domine, in the year of our Lord. Okay. Our calendar is based on Jesus. Our weekly calendar is based on Jesus. The world's weekly calendar is based on Jesus. Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, Sunday has become the Lord's Day or the Sabbath. Over 98 nations in world history have officially called themselves Christian nations more than any other um, worldview or religion. Jesus has more cities named after him or his followers than any other person in world history, 20,000 cities in Europe alone. (laughs) Jesus has more buildings named after him than any other person in world history. There have been more books, songs, and poems written about Jesus than any other person in world history. And again, I could go on and on and on. Jesus' followers are responsible for the scientific revolution, the creation of the universities, the creation of most hospitals, the abolition of slavery, and the liberation of women. Renowned Yale historian Yarsolov Pelikan wrote this. By the way, I'm going to quote some of these same stats in my sermon later, so sorry for repeating myself. I'm not that sorry. Sorry, not sorry. These are important stats. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Why? Because he's the son of God who rose from the grave victoriously. That's why. Number 10, finally, I've observed that Christianity has the best news to share. Often when I get into debates with with Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, I say, you know what, we we could talk all day about the deity of Christ and the Trinity and the virgin birth, but the bottom line is I have much better news than you. (laughs) My religion teaches that there is absolutely nothing that I can do to save myself. Even my best deeds are filthy rags. Salvation is all of grace. Jesus came to earth, died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave. Now all I have to do is turn away from my sins and trust him, and I am saved by grace through faith. That is way better news than do better, try harder. And do better, try harder is the message of every other religion but Christianity. So just getting really pragmatic. Christianity has much better news than Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism and Mormonism. Christianity's message of grace is utterly unique among worldviews. So, that's it. Those are my 10 observations. Again, are these airtight proofs? No. Is this razor sharp logic? No. I, I, again, I did that, I presented those five arguments last spring. But I do think we all live, we all have experiences, and we all make observations that we simply can't explain apart from a Christian worldview. So this is part of the the cumulative case for the truthfulness of Christianity. Again, I wouldn't start the conversation here. I begin with those five proofs. But I think for some people, these 10 things are powerful. And for me personally, uh, it's hard for me to uh, argue with my own experiences and the things I've observed with my own eyes. Okay. with that said, we've got a few minutes for questions. What are your questions, comments, snide remarks? (laughs) Prefer the latter. (laughs) Beth Ann. That's unrelated, Beth Ann. And and you're you're like destroying a huge secret. Was it really? Okay. I mean I guess I can announce it right now, I suppose. At some point you're all getting a free copy of Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. You're welcome. Um, it's, a, it's a fantastic book, um, runaway bestseller. So it came out last year, and it sold a million copies in a year. That's unheard of in Christian publishing. Why? It's incredibly well written, it's really good. It's a really, really good book on the love of God that um, I've really enjoyed. So uh, Crossway very generously, uh, some wealthy donor, I don't know who it was, I think in the Midwest, gave away millions of dollars to give this book to thousands and thousands of people for free. So we got 250 copies. So every family will get a free copy at some point in the future. Apparently Beth Ann already has hers. (laughs) Little five finger discount back there at the bookstore. (laughs) All right. Any more questions? So are the original five lessons from the screen online somewhere? Yes, they are online somewhere. Beth Ann, where where are the lessons? They're under Sunday school On the website, how would you find those? Beth Ann's our web guru. Yeah, it's pretty easy to find. And and is it video and audio or just audio? Okay. Yeah, very good. Okay. Great. Yeah. I don't know if they are the notes published, Beth Ann. It'd be pretty easy for me to email if you want them. I can email them to you. I guess we could post them too if we wanted to. What's that? Okay, or, or, or you could just read Norm Geisler's book, I Don't Have No Faith to Be an Atheist, which is a fantastic book, covers a lot of the same material. Yes, yeah, Rodney Stark wrote the book, and it is. Called I think God's Battalion, God's Battalions maybe, or or if you read um, if you read his book The Triumph of Christianity, which is which is a um, he has a chapter on that topic in that book, and that book is just a really good history of the church, and he argues in that book that the church has been the greatest source of good in, in Western Civ. That's probably a better place to start because it'll give you a chapter instead of a whole book, and the chapter summarizes his findings pretty well. There was a question over here. Comment, question over here? Okay, next week is The Problem of Evil, Part One. Uh, let me pray and ask for God's help as we move into our worship time. Father, thank you so much for giving us so many reasons to believe in the truthfulness of Christianity. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ came, lived, rose from the grave and he is now present with us. Father, we pray that as we gather for worship in a few moments, that you would pour out your spirit richly. Lord, encourage us with the singing, with the preaching, with the sacraments, and with the fellowship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a 10-minute break.